morning, church. Uh, it was 1989, and uh, I made my way down to the Master's College, and um, one of my professors at the time was uh, Dr. C.W. Smith, who was uh, the pastor of this local assembly. Sounds like some of you were around when Dr. Smith pastored here, so it's fun to be here and be reminded of uh, his ministry in my life. Well, happy Reformation Sunday. It was 505 years ago that Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses on the Wittenberg door, uh, the chapel there, and uh, of course the ripple throughout history which we are the recipients of. And so I thought it fitting as we sort of mark this, this season of church history in our calendar that we go to a text of scripture that the Lord used to transform the reformer Martin Luther's life. So I invite you to grab your Bible and make your way to Romans chapter 1. We'll be just looking at two verses this morning. Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. And uh, I'll just pray for us again now as we approach God's word. Lord, thank you for this moment in time. We're mindful that we don't stand isolated from church history or what you have done throughout the ages through your word and by your spirit. It was your word that transformed the monk Martin Luther into the reformer and recovery of the gospel and we are forever grateful. It's your word now that we approach to receive your truth and to not just receive it but be transformed by it. So would you do a work of transformation, we pray, Spirit of God. Amen. I was in, uh, I was in fifth grade. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. It was Gomes Elementary School. It was a talent show. And uh, I was eager to participate somehow. I was trying to sort of go through the library of what talents I had. I had a hard time coming up with what talents I had to use in the talent show. So for whatever reason, I thought I would do yo-yo tricks. I'm not sure that's a talent. Uh, even if it is a talent, I don't know that I had any yo-yo tricks to do. So there I was up in front of my fifth and sixth grade, you know, combined uh, classes for the talent show. Uh, I, I do the yo-yo trying to get it to sleep. I think that's what you call it, right, down there. The only problem was when I went to try to awake the yo-yo, it didn't, it didn't awaken. And so I'm grabbing and rolling it back up and trying one more time because I'm going to be, you know, a participant here. And of course, I got it down there and it wouldn't trick for me back up. And so I just remember this feeling of embarrassment. I imagine you could probably recount times in your life where you just felt embarrassed. You've also experienced shame. Shame feels a bit different than embarrassment. Shame we often associate with be getting caught in sin as opposed to just feeling silly. And you're, you're just ashamed of something you've done or some part of your story. And it's built into us as humans to all try to do something to deal with that sense of shame. See if any of these fit. 
Maybe it's making excuses. Maybe it's trying to minimize what happened. Maybe it's comparing what you did with others and their actions to try to feel like it's not as bad. Maybe it's just outright lies, deception, manipulation. And I'll just tell you, perhaps worst of all, it may be that you commit to just trying to to do better, to be better. I'm determined in my own strength to never be seen in that way. Again, I will make sure that I manage my life in such a way that I don't have to experience that kind of shame ever again. We don't want to feel these things because our conscience hates them. And this, um, my friends, is the issue in this text of scripture this morning. It's really the issue in this whole book, this treatise of the gospel, salvation, the book of Romans, strikes a blow at really this most important issue known to man. And here it is. How do I get right with God? How How am I viewed as right before God? How do I get seen as good by man. Here before us, we have a text that establishes a theme in these two verses. You've probably, if you've been in the church any stretch of time, committed these verses to memory. Maybe it's even been some of your church memory verses. And it's just this powerful picture of how God's wrath and judgment is awful and awaits us all. Everyone who has, every one of us, everyone has sinned, both as a law breaker and as a self-righteous law keeper. Your outward actions, right, they gain you no ground, no standing before God. Your ethnic heritage makes no difference as to your acceptance before God. Your family makeup, it doesn't hurt you or help you, and you just Because you were born on this fallen planet, you stand before God guilty and full of shame. That's the bad news of the gospel. And men throughout history have tried to figure out how to remedy that. How do I fix that? How do I appease my conscience? How do I deal with the sense of guilt and shame I feel? How do I get to feel okay, right? This text tells us that we'll only be able to stand before God and others unashamed when we have succumbed by faith to the power of God. And what I love about the book of Romans, though, if you've studied it, you know there's a lot of complicated and difficult theology in the book of Romans. There's also a beautiful simplicity in that this book tells us how all that works. How I get to be righteous, how I get to be accepted, how I can stand unashamed. And this text that we're looking at this morning is the central theme of the book. So hopefully you have your Bible open and I'm just going to read these two verses now for us. Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Now these two verses, they make up, uh, they're, they're made up of four clauses. I saw that you have a notes page there in your bulletin. If you're prone to taking notes, let me just tell you what these four clauses are because they really, they, they form the guideposts for us to navigate our way through this text. And here's what we'll see. Number one, in the beginning of verse 16, you might write verse 16a, that there is no shame. That's our first point. Second, at the end of verse 16, verse 16b, there is no distinction. And then when we come to verse 17, we see both number three, our new status, and then number four, our new motivation. Our new status, our new motivation. So let's look first at the, the first clause, the first point, no shame, no shame. You remember reading the book, The Scarlet Letter? Did you have to read that in high school or junior high? And uh, I don't remember all the ins and outs of the story, but of course the main point of the story was that this woman who was an adulteress was made to wear this letter A on her chest so that the whole of the community would see her sin and know of her unrighteousness and no doubt that she would feel the shame of that. She, it, it was made known to everyone. The goal, of course, was public shaming and to call attention to, to where someone is going against the expected cultural norms. Public shaming is meant to elicit mockery, maybe even anger, social rejection. Of course, in our day, we marginalize groups who aren't behaving as maybe our leaders or politicians or professors believe is acceptable today. Perhaps you even feel that, calling yourself a Christian in the workplace or in the public schools. Well, listen, Rome was no different in Paul's day. Christ followers in the day of Paul and the writing of the book of Romans were meant to feel shame, to be ashamed, which is why Paul was eager to preach the gospel to those who are at Rome. If you let your eye go to the verse before our text this morning, Romans chapter 1 verse 15 says, Paul says, I'm, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. Well, we ask, who was Paul eager to preach the gospel to? And you might be surprised to find that Paul was eager to preach the gospel, listen, to Christians. How do I know this? Look at verse 6. Paul says, including you who are, what does your Bible say? Called to belong to Jesus Christ. Who is that? It's Christians. You go down to verse 13 and Paul says, I want you to know what? Brothers. Brothers. See, we know that Paul was a great evangelist. We know that Paul was a great missionary and Paul cared about the lost. But what you need to know about his treatise of salvation here in Romans is that we see his pastoral heart to care for, don't miss this, to care for believers. That's who this text and who this book is directed at. I... Uh, do you ever, any of you ever memorized the Romans Road? 
it's a series of verses that we, we get through Romans that's a way of sharing the gospel. And so we, we see these tremendous gospel evangelistic verses in Rome. But listen, the book of Rome, the, the book of Romans actually... It's, it's not an evangelistic strategy. Like if you were sharing the gospel with unbelievers, you probably wouldn't get into circumcision and the law and some of the places that Paul goes to explain the gospel. And the reason that he does that is because his heart is as a pastor to shepherd a church that is made up of both Jews and Gentiles who now have come to trust Christ such that they might understand how the gospel works, how them getting righteous works. Why? So they won't be ashamed of it. So they won't back away from it. So they won't retreat from holding it fast in the face of public mockery. So look at the beginning of verse 16. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I just want to remind you this morning that it is the gospel itself, listen, that creates the shame that we are then told to not be ashamed of. Now, what do I mean? See, the essence of the good news of the gospel starts with, ready for it? You're a sinner. Like, that's an offensive message, isn't it? That's something that maybe you feel ashamed of telling the world about. Like, no one wants to hear you're a sinner. Well, Romans and Paul goes on to say a lot more about this. He says in verse uh, 18 of chapter 1, you suppress the truth. In chapter 1, verse 21, you don't honor God. In chapter 1, verse 25, you've exchanged truth, you've exchanged true worship for idolatry. In chapter 1, verse 26, you're immoral. In chapter 1, verse 28, you have a wretched mind. In chapter 1, verses 29 to 31, you're, you're, you're filled with all these immoral things. And in chapter 1, verse 32, you deserve to die and that's just Romans chapter 1. <laughs> right? The gospel says you're guilty and full of shame. The only way that you'll not be ashamed by the content of the gospel, brothers and sisters, and the attacks that come to us as a result of our holding to the gospel Listen, is if you have felt its power in your own life. You hear me? The only way you won't back down, the only way you won't be ashamed is if you know of its power in your own life. And you have come to know the depth of the riches of the love and mercy and grace of God. And when you have felt that deep power of the gospel in your own life, then there is a posture to the unashamed believer. And can I just remind us that the posture of the unashamed believer is not one of being angry. It's not anger. I think that so often the church in our day, I, I feel it in my own heart watching the news and seeing the way that the things that we hold precious get talked about. And it can make me angry. It's not the right posture for me to have. 
You see, we, we all still may be dealing with our own shame. We may be experiencing the shaming of a godless culture. But listen, believer, we have the power to walk unashamed. And what that means is that we don't respond with disdain or disgust. Paul actually says in the verses previous that he is in debt to show the people around him the love and grace of the gospel. So so can I just say this as clearly as possible? Those that are trying to shame us as Christians for holding fast to the word of God, they're not the enemy. They're the mission field. Paul didn't get angry at them. Paul, with an unashamed conviction because he knew the power of God in his own life, felt a sense of great debt to manifest the love and grace and mercy of God to a lost world around him. If you have your Bible open and you're able to turn uh, quickly, uh, I'll invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If not, just listen as I read. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 9 and 10 Paul here writing to the Corinthian church, he just reminds them of this concept that I've just explained. And he had to remind the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Yeah, see, I told you, we're not supposed to be with the godless people. Then he goes on to say, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to do what? Go out of the world. He's saying, look, I've, I am telling you, don't associate with those who call themselves Christians and act immorally. I'm not for a minute saying that you're not supposed to associate with the immoral, the immoral or the greedy in the world because then there'd, no, there'd be no place for you to go. There'd be no one for you to talk to because the world without Christ is all immoral. I want you just to think about this honestly with me for a minute. I had to do some wrestling in my own soul over this, this issue. If your response to the public shaming of the church is one of anger or disdain or disgust, listen, I think I would propose to you that it just may be that you are actually ashamed of the gospel. You don't like how you're being treated by godless bosses, neighbors, and rather than having the confidence that the gospel is the answer, you actually are fighting to be seen as acceptable, respectable, good. See, my best friends in high school were unbelievers, And uh, they went off to important colleges, so I thought. And I came down to the master's college, and I'm thinking, well, you know, I love the master's college. It transformed my life there. But, you know, they're at UCLA and Berkeley, and I felt like somehow I was lesser than because I was going to this small little Christian college, and they were going to prestigious, important schools. And I'll never forget wrestling with that feeling of embarrassment, of being ashamed that somehow it doesn't feel impressive. 
So how do you and I walk like Paul, unashamed? Well, we understand that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And you love it with all your heart. You see, I needed to believe that no matter what my unbelieving friend's response was, the gospel, it was and always will be their only path to rescue, right? I have the answer. I don't have to jam it down anyone's throat. I just need to hold it, hold it high with a smile on my face. And so the first thing that Paul is saying to the Roman believers is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. I don't want you to be ashamed of the gospel either. I want you just to be able to delightfully hold it high before a godless culture. I feel like that's a pretty timely message for us today, isn't it? Well, let's look at the next clause here in verse 16. And this comes under the, the, the title, No Distinction. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It was now a few months ago that NASA was getting ready to launch the beginning of a new mission uh, to get to moon, the moon was unmanned and then to have a manned mission to the moon and then from there to be able to build a base of some sort and then head to Mars. And of course they scrubbed the, the launch but I was impressed by these new rockets that they have, the engineers had designed, the Artemis rockets, the power of these rockets to take this spacecraft to the moon. The Spirit of God, through Paul, says the gospel, the good news, 75 times in the New Testament, it is, it is the rocket power of God. You want to know what the power of God is? It's the gospel. This clause here in verse 16 actually answers the question, listen, of how you can be unashamed. And the answer is the power of God for salvation. This is our rocket power. Now this is good. This is good. We, we absolutely believe, you got to track this because Paul is perhaps saying something a little different than you've maybe previously thought. We absolutely believe that the gospel is the power of God to save sinners, don't we? Nothing else. No other name under heaven by which men may be saved. But remember, Paul is preaching the gospel here to believers. Why is he doing that? I grew up in church. I was an Awana kid. Uh, memorized lots of verses, felt pretty good about my behavior, my achievements. Trusted Christ when I was young. Did I ever doubt that I was saved? Man, you bet I did. My guess is if you have a similar testimony, you probably did too. And in my doubt, man, am I, am I really saved? Am I supposed to feel something that I'm not feeling? Am I supposed to be something that I'm not being? In my doubts, what did I do? I tried to be a good kid. Uh, 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 I 
I tried to, you know, make sure that my behavior merited what I thought was pretty great, that God would save me and that he got a pretty good deal in the process. Can I tell you that wasn't the right response? Because all that did was taught me how to be external. All that did was teach me how to be, don't miss this, self-righteous. It didn't provide me with the day-to-day rocket power to get through. It didn't provide me with the kind of power to grow. Because this life throws all kinds of obstacles at us. And every time in the scriptures that we see this construction, and and you got to look at the, the prepositions, unto salvation or for salvation, right? For I'm in the scene of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Every time Paul uses that construction, listen, it's not talking about getting saved. It's actually talking about making it to the end, being saved from future judgment. Now, Theologically, we understand those go together, right? What God began, he will bring to completion. But I think there's an interesting distinction that Paul is trying to remind believers in this language. And it's this, brother and sister, you're not sure how you're going to get through this week of all that you have going on. You're not sure how you're going to get through that illness, that diagnosis. You're not going to get, you're not not sure how you're going to get through that difficult financial situation that you're in. It's not look back and try to do enough to remind yourself that you're saved. It's look forward and remember that God supplies all the power to get you through to the end. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 27 and 28. Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews says. And you'll hear the similar language. Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's talking about something in the future. See, some of you feel decently confident that you have started the Christian life, or maybe a child or a grandchild has, but maybe not so certain that you or they are going to get to the finish line. What do you need? Well, Paul would say you need the gospel preached to you believer. You need the gospel preached to you to get you through this crazy mixed up temptation filled world and make it to the glorious end. You say, well, I didn't think I could lose my salvation. It's true. You can't. God did it. You can't undo it, but you certainly can be deceived into thinking that you have something that you don't actually have. And it's only the power of the gospel, listen to this, that will keep you believing. Because it's always about believing. Believing. Now look at the rest of verse 16. He says, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know that it's only one thing that keeps lost people from experiencing the power of gospel to save them. Only one thing. You know what that is? Unbelief. Unbelief. It's the only sin that keeps people out of the kingdom of God. Just not believing that it is the power of God that makes me right. 
that I can't do enough, that I can't perform enough, that I can't rid myself of these shame-filled clothes I wear and thoughts that I have, that it is only through believing in what Christ has accomplished. Same thing that keeps you and I as believers from being unashamed. Our unbelief. And then in our unbelief, we think we have to try to impress the boss. We think we have to try to take matters into our own hands. We think we have to try to clean up the outside so that people will like us more. And this gospel power that Paul speaks of is available to everyone, it says there in verse 16, right? To the Jew and to the Greek or to the Gentile. Now, Paul says Jew first. Because they were the people of God historically, right? In the Old Testament. They were the the ones who would have been entrusted with the oracles of God. The law. And Jesus was a Jew born to Jewish parents. And so much of Romans is about demonstrating how all have sinned. Those with the law and those without it. Those circumcised and those uncircumcised. No distinction in the fall. That's the... The second term, no shame, no distinction. We're all under sin and all who will believe can experience rightness with God. Look at uh, or listen to Romans chapter 10 verses 11 to 13. This is what Paul says later in Romans. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's what we're talking about, right? You believe, you won't be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, the offense of the gospel to the nations isn't that God hates Gentiles and loves Jews. Listen, it's that neither of them are worthy to be saved and all are under his judgment. The Jews didn't like that message, did they? And no one, Jew or Gentile, can produce enough rightness to be saved. That any are saved at all should humble us. That we are saved by faith Without merit done in the past or in the present or good works, you know, done now, that, that, that God would save us, it should humble us. Because it is through faith that the righteousness of God is revealed. And that brings us to verse 17. And our third point, we have a new status. For in it, what's it? It's The gospel, right? It's what he just talked about here in verse 16. The power of God manifest in the gospel that one receives by faith, by believing for everyone who believes. No shame, no distinction. And so there's this new status. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, I... um, My wife, Michelle, is with me here this morning, whom I love dearly. We've been married almost 30 years I hate it when my wife talks during a movie. <laughs> Brothers, do you, can you feel this with me? And it used to cause conflict and, you know, I, I have, I've, I've tried to institute a new strategy. This might be helpful. This might be the only thing you take away from the sermon this morning. 
I now hit pause. I turn to my wife and say, sweetheart, what can I explain to you about the movie that I don't yet know because I'm watching the movie and that's the reason they're telling the story because I don't know what's happening yet because it hasn't happened. But how can I help you? A little cynicism there, right? And then when I've answered whatever questions you may have, I start the movie again, right? Um, so let me, let me just fill you in on what I know. We're hitting pause for a moment. And this is what I know from what Paul has said in Romans chapter 1. The gospel is the power to live unashamed to the end. Everybody got that? To not shrink back. And to not get red in the face angry either. And now, verse 17 is going to show us how the gospel gets me to the end. Saving me from the wrath of God that I deserve. And in one simple, profound phrase, that answer is, you ready? The righteousness of God. That's how he gets me to the end. The righteousness of God. Well, let me, let me try to explain it this way. If I told you that you owed me $10, you'd, you'd probably figure out a way to pay me back. 20 bucks, 100 bucks, maybe even a couple thousand. You'd, you'd say, hey, give me a few months. I can work hard. I can put in some overtime. I'll pay you back. But what if I told you that you owed me, you, that you owed me $12 billion, right? You'd throw your hands up. And you just go like, there's no way I can, I can pay that back. You see, friend, can I just tell you that part of the reason that so many people choose good works over being kind, or, or being kind uh, over trusting in Christ for salvation is this. They have no clue how big the debt is that they owe. And so we hear the mantras that we do today. Be kind. Right? That somehow just... You know, being kind is, is our salvation. Or acceptance is, you know, we, we can just all live in harmony, right? We don't understand the weight of the debt of sin that bears God's wrath upon us. And this is why Paul's argument starts with sin and this unpayable debt, Right, That you and I can't get right enough to deal with the guilt and shame of our high treason against our creator. You think you're not that bad. If you think you're not that bad. If someone you're trying to share the gospel with thinks they're not that bad. Then you're just going to choose trusting yourself. Trying to pay it back. Your efforts at being right enough. We call it self-righteousness. It's why, can I just tell you, it's why so many religious, kind, church-going people are going to hell. See, when we minimize sin, we actually undermine the foundation of gospel power. And we wreck the greatest apologetic that we have as Christians to help people see their need for something that they can't provide. Romans chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. This is what Paul says. Romans 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved, listen, by his life. Being saved by Christ's life, listen church, is exactly what Paul is describing in our text in verse 17. He's saying we are saved by Christ's life. That is the righteousness of God that has been revealed. You say, how does the gospel save us from the wrath of God against unrighteous sinners? And Paul says the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. It is his righteousness that moves me through his wrath into fellowship and intimacy with God now and forever. So what is this righteousness of God? It is my shame over my unrightness that is now covered you with me by another's rightness through him Jesus overcoming his shame and now clothing me in that righteousness this is the gospel is it not this is the gospel now I told you I select this text because Reformation Sunday this is the phrase that the monk the Catholic professor Martin Luther hated Romans 1 17 where it says for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith he hated that phrase until the spirit broke through and gave him understanding and he wrote this there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. He says, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Listen, there is a huge difference theologically and practically between a religion that believes God gives you the grace to act righteously and the faith that believes God clothes you in a righteousness that's not your own. Some of you say this just trying to be a, a pastoral help to you. Some of you may have come out or grown up in a Catholic, Roman Catholic background the center point of a catholic gathering of course is the eucharist the mass where they believe that then you get grace you receive grace so that then you can go and be righteous so it's a religion that believes you get grace to go be righteous well, Luther, that was what he grew up understanding. That, You know what? He, he was tormented by not being able to know whether he could do enough righteous. 
And so he would go through all the means of grace in the Catholic Church. He would spend hours confessing his sin only to then want to start over for fear that he'd forgotten to confess something. He was tormented. How can I know that I'm righteous? That's the trap of the Roman Catholic theological system versus what we believe as Protestants on this side of the Reformation that says you don't get grace to be righteous you're actually clothed in righteousness that you did nothing to earn and it's not about doing right things it's you actually are righteous because Christ clothed you in his righteousness and when Luther understood that you heard him he said it opened up paradise to me You see, no amount of moral transformation gets you right with God. Only in the righteousness of God do you then experience moral transformation. And that comes by faith. See, this is God crediting to my account, right, the perfect righteousness of Christ by which I'm declared righteous. You guys with me? I mean, that's, that's rich, deep theology. I get that. I'm declared righteous. I can't do righteous. I am righteous. And I get it by faith, right? For in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And when my status has changed, right? That's our third point, my status. I'm righteous. My whole motivation in life has changed. And that leads us to our fourth and final point. And that is I have a new motivation. And that comes there at the end of verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live, what? By faith. Brother, sister, do you know what motivates you? Like, do you know why you do the things that you do? I love what the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 9 verse 16, he captures this massive obstacle in how so many of us are motivated. Listen to Psalm 916. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. Listen to this. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Now think about that for a minute. The wicked are snared by the work of their own hands. That is not the motivation of a person who has experienced the power of God for salvation. Because the only motivation for the believer who has embraced by faith the good news of the gospel is to keep believing. And yet how many times am I ensnared by the works of my own hands. Good works, pastoral works, things that I think somehow make me more acceptable before God, more loved by God, more pleased to him. It's a wicked lie straight from the pit of hell. The only motivation For me, taking another breath and another step and waking up tomorrow morning, should God be so gracious, is to walk by faith. What does that mean? It means to keep believing that the gospel is the gospel is the gospel. That my righteousness comes by no other means 
That it's the only way I can stand unashamed. It's the only way I'll have the power to get to the end. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Paul says, right, the life that I now live, I live by faith. See, Paul was eager to preach the gospel to believers because he was unashamedly convinced that it was the only way, listen, for believers to make it to the end. Now, this is a quote from the prophet Habakkuk or Habakkuk, however you prefer to say the name. And Habakkuk captures the scene of the Old Testament rebellious Judah and God's anger and wrath against their sin. He's going to raise up Babylon to capture and to destroy Judah. And they wonder, Judah, the Old Testament people, is there any way for us to escape this judgment? And there was, and there is. And this is what Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2, 4. He quotes it again in Galatians chapter 3. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, rescue from God has been, Old Testament, and always will be this side of the cross by faith. And your status, which is righteous, if you're a child of God, it now directs, listen, your motive, which is to walk by faith. You know, we do lots of things as the church, but you know what we do together as a church? If you could just distill it down to one simple thing, One simple thing that we're called to do together. It's this. We keep each other believing. We gather for worship service. You gather for Bible studies. You have prayer groups, small groups. You get together for coffee, for lunch. You go to each other's houses. You have one thing that you are to do together as believers. We keep each other believing. That's just another way of saying we walk by faith. We're motivated by faith. And this status change of righteousness that leads to this motivation change, it means that I continue to see day after day that his righteousness, not my goodness, is what gets me through. It's his promises that I must cling to. And listen, not my wisdom. This is why, friends, people who don't think that they have much of a debt to pay will never make it to the kingdom of God. And those that are overwhelmed by their guilt and shame, they race to the cross where a rightness or righteousness before God is found and they never let go until he brings them to the end. So let me just close by reading from Peter. This wasn't just a Paul thing. Peter captures this so beautifully in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 5. Listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Listen, who by God's power are being guarded through faith For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Church of the Canyons, you want to live unashamed. Keep believing that it is the righteousness of Christ alone in which you live. That's a pretty good 
505-year-old message for us this morning, isn't it? Let me pray for us. God, I'm humbled by the truth that I had nothing to do with my salvation. That my standing and my status before you are not because I earned something or not even because you gave me grace to do something good, but entirely by the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And that righteousness that I get by faith. Lord, may this be the message we live by, the message we live for. May it be the power that, lives, uh, that, that leads us to live unashamed, confident that we will make it to the end. And may we do so trying to bring as many others as possible to that same saving faith.